you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easy, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Father, you tell us that your word is breathed out by you and that it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in all righteousness. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us, that you would show us our sin, but even more than that, that you would show us Jesus this morning. We pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This story obviously had a big impact on the disciples. Why? Well, it's included in every gospel account except the gospel of John. And in other accounts, it says that the disciples were exceedingly astonished, greatly astonished. What was so astonishing? It begs the question that the disciples would want you and I to hear this story so badly. Well, simply put, here's what the disciples heard Jesus saying. That those who have it all together, those that look good on the outside are not necessarily Christians. You see, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing reverses everything that you and I instinctively think about who's in and who's out. And these disciples were clearly taken with this man. I mean, think about it. He must have been so put together, so in control of his life, so intimidating as he walked up so in control of his religious life, his devotional life, and yet Jesus sends him away empty-handed. And this blew the disciples' mind. You see, at the heart of the kingdom that Jesus is establishing on earth is an all-out attack against self-sufficiency. Look at verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17 If I've taught Sunday school class and you've been in it, you hear me say a lot, context, context, context. It helps us interpret uh, our Bibles and particularly in this passage. If you look at the context of our story that we're looking at this morning, you'll see that sandwiched right smack in the middle of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector and Jesus and the rich man is this story of Jesus and the little children. Luke puts that story there to reveal to us this morning the huge contrast between the self-righteousness of the Pharisee and the self-righteousness of the rich ruler. You see, the point of Jesus and the little children is not the misunderstanding of the disciples, as we've often been taught. No, the point of the story of Jesus and the children is the passiveness, the weakness, the desperation, the helplessness in which the children come to Jesus. The story of the rich ruler follows that story and further illustrates for us this morning 
that following Jesus is about helplessness, not self-sufficiency. And since that is the case, we're going to see three ways we should respond this morning from our passage. And first, if you have an outline printed for you in your passage, you see that we need to repent of our goodness. Look at verse 18. The rich man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he obviously has no idea who he's talking to. Why? Well, because the words do and inherit tip us off right from the beginning that he thought that salvation or eternal life was through his good works and through his own efforts, which is totally contrary to what Jesus says, the gospel being about grace, the gospel coming to us as a gift. Then look in verse 19. Jesus exposes the rich man's heart and he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus corrects the rich man's understanding of goodness. And he says, rich man, the understanding of goodness is not what you think it is, but it's what God thinks it is. God is the standard and the source of all goodness. You see, the rich man thought of himself as a good person, and he was going to another good person, Jesus, to find out what he needed to do to gain eternal life. And so Jesus says, okay, you want to play? I'll play. Keep the commandments. And then he goes through the commandments. You see them right there in your Bible. And the rich man has the audacity and the arrogance to stand before the holy God of the universe and say, been there, done that. All these things that I've kept, I have kept since I was a boy. He's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I deserve eternal life because I'm good enough. His definition of the Christian life was outward conformity to a a list of rules and a set of regulations. And he had no focus whatsoever on the heart. Could it be this morning that our careful obedience to all the rules in the Christian life is just another strategy for avoiding Jesus? In her novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor says this about one of her characters. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. You see, the rich ruler was avoiding Jesus with his goodness. His goodness was just another way to cover up his brokenness that existed in his own heart. His good deeds were just another way to keep him from seeing his need. They kept him from seeing the Savior. Could it be this morning as well that the things that we need to repent most of this morning are the things that we like most about ourselves? Our goodness. What is it for you? Here's how you find out. When you let yourself down, or when you blow it big time, or mess up, what do you do to soothe yourself? What do you do to make yourself feel better, or to make yourself feel acceptable again before God and before others? You know, often we have this internal dialogue when we blow it or mess up, and we say this, well... Yeah, I know I've messed up and blew it, 
but at least, I'm not that bad, at least I don't blank. Whatever you fill in the blank with this morning is what you need to repent most of. I'm not that bad, well, at least I'm nice. At least I don't lose my anger with my children. Or at least, I'm not that bad, at least my children are well behaved. If this passage is saying anything to us this morning, it is saying that those things, the things we like most about ourselves, are our biggest problem. George Whitfield has a great quote, and he says that being a Christian is not just repenting of the bad things in your life, but it's also repenting of the things that you think you're doing right. Here's what he means. Being a Christian is not just repenting of your sin and how you've blown it, but it's repenting of the things that you're looking to, good things, to make yourself feel right before a holy God, to make yourself feel commendable and acceptable to Him again. We have to get to a place, friends, where we realize that on our best day, our righteousness before a holy God is nothing more than filthy rags in His sight, as the Scriptures tell us. And you know how we'll get there? You get there by looking full on at God, opening up the Scriptures and praying for God to reveal Himself to you. And when He reveals Himself and you see His splendor, you see His holiness, you see His glory, and you say, I need help. It empties you of hope in yourselves as you see God for who He really is in all of His glory. And when it empties us of hope, it points us to Jesus as the only one that can make us right and make us acceptable. Following Jesus, it means that we repent of our goodness. But secondly, we see, look at verse 22, it means that we we repent of our idols or we release our idols. Look at verse 22. Jesus knew this man hadn't kept the commandments. Jesus knows all. And so he says, okay, let's start with the first. Have no other gods before me. He asks this man, he says, give up your God and come follow me. And the man goes away sad. Now, we need to be careful. This shouldn't be taken here. That this is a universal call for all of us to walk out of here and sell everything we've got to give to the poor. No, that's not the point of this passage. It's been preached that way before, but that's not the point. The point is, this was Jesus goes after the thing in our lives that is keeping us from him. And that is exactly what he's doing here. He's talking about this man's specific situation. And he goes after it and he asks this man to sell everything and give it up and follow him. And the man couldn't do it. Isn't it interesting that... After having said that he had kept all the commandments, he couldn't even make it past the first. Give up your gods and follow me. And so the man's heart was revealed as a heart that really didn't love Jesus, really didn't delight in him if it meant giving up his life source. Every single one of us this morning, including myself, if we're honest has things in our lives that we are holding on to, things that we're unwilling to let go of, 
things that have taken priority over Jesus, things that have crept into our life and stolen our affections, the affections of our hearts from Jesus. What is it for you? What are your idols? Here, here's how you know. What, an idol is this. Anything that you're looking to for life outside of Christ. Anything that you're looking to to help you cope or to help soothe you in this broken, fallen world in which we live. Anything that you're looking to or that you're plugging into to make yourself feel more alive. Your idols are often exposed by answering this question. What really makes you happy? What really gives your life meaning? It could be comfort. It could be image. If I just have the right body type, then I'm happy. It could be family. It could be your children. That, man, if my children just stay in line and don't get out of line and they, they're successful and they marry the right person, I'm happy. I have meaning. It could be possessions. It could be success. It could be wealth. It could be work, approval. You name it. If you are looking to something else besides Jesus for life and meaning, then it is an idol. Here's another way that you know what your idols are. How do you respond when your idol gets threatened or when it gets taken away from you? I have a friend who called me over Easter, and he has a young son, and it was Easter, so Easter means Easter baskets. And he gave his son an Easter basket and the famous chocolate bunny. I used to love those growing up. He had a chocolate bunny in the Easter basket. He gives it to his son, but his son had already had lots of candy. And so he decides to just give him an ear of this chocolate bunny. Yeah, you laugh because you know where this is going. His son didn't like that. And there was a total meltdown. His son gets angry and frustrated and takes off running back to his room and slams the door. My friend, his father, walks back to his room and says, Son, is it wrong of you to want the chocolate bunny? Yes, Daddy, it's wrong of me. I'm sorry for wanting the chocolate bunny. My friend said, No, it's not wrong to want the chocolate bunny because chocolate bunnies are good. And they're meant to be enjoyed. But is, there, is it wrong of you to want a good thing too much? And his son said, yes, daddy, it is. He says, son, what happens when we want a good thing too much? And he looks at his father without blinking an eye and says, I get ugly. What are the chocolate bunnies in your life? This morning, the things that when you don't get them cause you to get ugly and angry and depressed and frustrated and disappointed. That will reveal your idols. You see, when our idols get threatened or taken from us, when we don't get the approval we want, when we don't get the promotion at work we want, or we don't make the money that we think we should, we get angry and we get frustrated. Those will reveal your idols. Or we like the rich ruler. Our joy is just sapped from us. And we go away sad. So how do you dismantle your idols? 
How do you deal with them? Well, it's not by trying harder. It's not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting in one more accountability group, though accountability groups can be good. The first thing we do is we have to realize the emptiness of our idols. You've got to pray and ask God to show you how empty the idols are. You've got to pray and ask God to show you that they'll never love you back. They'll never give you the life that you want, the joy you want, and the satisfaction you want. Get God to ask Him to show you that instead of giving you life, what they really do is make you a slave. That's the first thing. And then secondly, you've got to linger faithfully and dependently around the means of grace. You've got to pray. You've got to get under the preaching of the Word. You've got to get in Sunday school. You've got to get in small groups and get around the Scriptures. You've got to come and experience the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And you've got to stay there until you meet Jesus. Richard Lovelace says this. He's an author. He says, The root of vibrant Christian living is warming oneself at the fire of our privileges and redemption in Jesus. It is to be melted by spiritual understanding of who we are in Christ. The only way any of us are ever going to release our idols is when Jesus becomes more beautiful to us. When our hearts are so captured by the incredible wonder, the incredible grace and beauty of the Lord Jesus so that no other love can come in and snatch away and fill our hearts up. That's how we'll release our idols. And so I ask you this morning, the rich man goes away sad when he's asked to give up some of his possessions. He couldn't do it because he loved them more than life itself. So what about you? When Jesus calls you this morning to give up something to follow him, Will you listen and obey or will you walk out of these doors and be sad like the rich ruler? Following Jesus means that we repent of our goodness and we release our idols. And thirdly and finally, this morning, we rest in his power. Look at verses 24 and 25. Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There has been a lot of ink spilled on this verse over the years. But simply stated, here's what he's talking about. He is simply illustrating for us the impossibility of the rich man to gain or merit eternal life on his own strength. And the disciples, look at what they say in verse 26. They say, Who then can be saved? You see, it blew the disciples' mind that this rich man, who was so put together, so in control of his life, wealthy, which was a sign of God's favor back then, could be excluded. They were in utter shock that God would send him away. And so they say, who then can be saved? Are are we all right? Is there hope for us? Is there hope for anyone? And you know, that's exactly the question that Jesus wanted them to ask the entire time. Why? Well, look at verse 27. Jesus answers it and says, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Jesus is acknowledging the impossibility of anyone 
rich, poor, whatever, to save themselves. He's saying here that the only way any of us gets to heaven, any of us gets eternal life, any of us gets into the kingdom, is if God does it all. You see, unless God is the author of our salvation... And unless the Holy Spirit applies that salvation, then you and I don't have a prayer. Look at verse um, 15 up there earlier. Jesus makes it clear. You see, he's coming full circle here. And he says that following him, it's not about riches, but it's about becoming like a child. Remember verse 15. I tell you the truth. Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. That's the point. Christianity, friends, it's not about self-sufficiency, but it's about desperation. It's about helplessness. It's about giving up hope in all that we are and running to Jesus. It's about weakness. And going to Christ is our only hope. If weakness and brokenness and helplessness is not the theme of your life this morning, then you're in big trouble. And unfortunately, our community is tailor-made to keep you out of the kingdom of God and to keep you away from Jesus. It just is. Why? Well, because life here is all about self-sufficiency. It's all about looking a certain way and having it all together. And it's totally contrary to what Jesus says the kingdom is about. It's RUF Sunday. It's Graduate Sunday. Some of you know more about RUF than others. But in short, here's who we are. Week in and week out, through large group weekly meetings, small groups, one-on-ones with students, we meet with them. We preach it in our large groups. We talk about it in our small groups, what it means to follow Jesus. And one of the things we want to communicate is everything that I've just mentioned here today. We want to communicate to these students that the Christian life and following Jesus is not about making much of ourselves. But it is about making much of Jesus, making much of our Savior. Why? Well, because when helplessness and desperation and weakness starts to characterize our life, and when it starts to become the theme of our life, guess what? God will be moved, and a new power will be released on our campuses, in our marriages, in our families, in our lives, in our friendships, and in this church, and in churches all around the country. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strip away all of our self-righteousness. I pray that you would strip off all the things that we're looking to besides you to make ourselves feel right. Show us our desperate need for a Savior. May we be marked as a people, as a community, as a ministry that makes much of you, that boasts in who you are, 
and what you've done for us. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.